Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hey everyone, it's William and Matthew, and here's today's opening problem. A new party has come to power in the United States. This party supports a complete takeover of business, solely putting power in the hands of the workers. Also, they have advanced the idea of a 60% tax rate in order to fully fund Social Security and Medicare for All. Also, in order to promote truth, all news organizations are subject to government fines if it is found that they are not truthful. This party is called the New United Freedom Movement, and their slogan is, quote, small government, useful government. While tongue-in-cheek, the problem is America has a sloganeering and ideological nomenclature issue. Quote, we are the party of law and order. Also, we need a civil war. Antifa is a myth. Also, it's a vital organization to fight against the fascists. Alt-right, progressive, conservative, moderate, classical liberal. These terms and policy positions exist galore, but often get shoved into two parties. So today, the question of the show is, what does implementing an ideology look like? Yeah, we have an issue that you'll see every day. People talk about, I'm not this and I'm not that, but then they're supporting those things or they will vote for those things while claiming that it's not really what they stand for. I mean, how many people talk about the principled conservatives who go, yeah, Donald Trump enacted every single thing I wanted, but I'm not going to vote for him, right? And it came up earlier today with some of my family. My mother-in-law was talking about how her son calls himself a libertarian, but voted for Biden. Well, how do those two things reconcile? Yeah, and that's because there are so many different ideologies and so many different ways of putting into practice what you want to have happen because an ideology is quite literally just an abstract theory. It's a system of beliefs that you have. And then you have to actually create policies. You have to put people in power. You have to enact different decisions that have been made by your various institutions. And those have different effects So I think there's three things we really want to talk about with just this problem that is going on, because I I just don't think there's a lot of people discussing this. So I guess the first thing to recognize is what is an ideology at its root? Yeah. So an ideology at its root is, in terms of political purposes, it is a system of values and principles, and it's usually based around core tenets. So there's going to be certain core things that make it different than everybody else, right? Because everybody's a fan of sort of the same ideas. Everybody's for free speech, right? That you can break it down into what about hate speech? You know, there's those problems. So there's certain tenets that are going to be at the core. And that's kind of why we titled this episode Democratic Imperialism. You know, it's two things that really don't go together. (laughs) You know, if you're voting for your dictator at some point, Either the voting or the dictator part is going to be the primary tenant that you revolve around. And the key is those core tenants, they can't be screened out by people's slogans. You always have those good tweets from people and they <laughs> where they, you know, they they smack somebody down and people will talk about the different solutions, like we're gonna work with you, and then this is like our halfway point. Core tenants are things that you can't get rid of they'll supersede all the other considerations and values in decision-making. So, you know, for me as a conservative, if I'm talking about personal responsibility, that's going to matter more than, hey, did you make a choice here? 
That's going to be a question I ask, rather somebody else saying, hey, was a choice put upon them? You'll see that the way someone talks about it will change depending on their ideology. A socialist is not going to allow a corporation to amass profits without first saying, okay, you have to take care of these needs of a community. And I'm sure a lot of people go, well, we should take care of the needs of a community. And you're right. It's that definition of what is a need of a community. That's the part of taking an ideology and putting it into practice, which is really what politics is. What's funny about you bringing up this situation of first making sure they're taking care of the needs of a community. The first thing that I think of is jobs, that they are good jobs for people to do so they can raise themselves out of poverty. But that's not necessarily what a true socialist is going to think. So the, the first idea that came to mind when you were talking about that topic is how AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, basically kicked Amazon out of wanting to come to New York City for <laughs> their next like super center yep. or something like oh, yeah. that. And the position of a large group of people is that Amazon should absolutely put a foothold there because it's lots of jobs. And her position, I think, was that they shouldn't allow Amazon to be given a bunch of tax credits to bring all their jobs locally to support that right. area. It's, it's a bad company. It's going to get these tax breaks. It's going to get all these things. So that's bad. Therefore, it shouldn't be here. But yeah, again, that's the thing. It's going to have conflicting applications. There's people in her district that opposed her on this one. But when she says corporations are bad, they're agreeing with her. Right. So if you start having conflicting applications... Meanwhile, it could be that corporations are bad, but the outcomes of having lots of jobs are good. Right, and that's the balancing act. So that's why there's so many ideologies. There's so many ways of solving a problem. There's so many approaches, and those things are good. It's, it's good to have a lot of those. Just having one or two can really make your society wilt, but actually implementing them, that's the key. And the other thing that'll happen is a lot of times these movements, they will make arguments on why you should pick them in such a way that's not actually conducive to telling you what they want to do. And that's why the second thing we want to talk about specifically is what's called the Moton-Bailey fallacy. I haven't heard of that before. Can you yeah. explain? So the Moton-Bailey fallacy is a form of argument where whoever's making the argument conflates two positions which, which share similarities. One that's modest and easy to defend, which is the moat, and... One more controversial, the Bailey. It's based off the first style of castle building where there was an inner keep that was very easily defensible. That's where the, the Lord lived and you know it had high walls and was very hard to get into. And then there was the Bailey that was a little bit easier to get into. That's kind of where like the town was and your market. And it was easier to get into there. So the idea is you advance that controversial position, which is going to have a lot more argument and resistance to. You've got to really explain yourself well. But when you get challenged, they retreat back and say, hey, I'm only advocating for this, right? So I'll often see this with the, you know, all gun laws are unconstitutional crowd. They'll talk about, we should own tanks and attack helicopters, right? And then when somebody says, that seems a little excessive, instead of explaining themselves, they'll just go, well, I just want people to defend themselves. You aren't against people defending themselves, are you? <laughs> That's an example of it. And then the idea is they've now painted you as the unreasonable person because, well, you have attacked people defending themselves. You can't be in this conversation because you're just so ridiculous. When really, they're not talking about that. They're talking about your idea that you were advancing of owning tanks and attack helicopters. So 
just to be clear, maybe an example of this could be for people that might be extremely pro-choice where they might say abortion for all, even up to the end of the ninth month. And if somebody attacks that as being too far, they can go back and say, well, you wouldn't want to be against women having a personal choice over their own bodies, would you? Because women have the right to be their self-personhood and they have the right to make decisions over themselves. And that's a much more tolerable and easy to defend moat. Would you say? It is, because what's the other person's option? The option is to then go, well, no, I love women. Women are great. I'm a fan of them. In fact, I married one. You know, you've put this person (laughs) in a position where they're not able to really attack your specific idea because you've made it some sort of, I think the most successful Moton Bailey argument is the love wins. Do you remember that when when it was the gay rights movement? That was the big slogan was love wins. It made me raise my eyebrows because as a gay man who happens to be married to a woman, I'm like, okay, love win, wins. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember this. Love is love. And people would just shout these things. It was a huge discussion in the church at the time. And someone would get up and would say, look, God created the man and woman. The purpose of a family is to have children to provide for those children and to create a family. Like that's the purpose of marriage. And then all of a sudden someone just get up and start going, love is love, love wins. And then when you would go, well, look, I'm not saying that, you know, love doesn't win here. I'm just trying to say, and they go, well, obviously you're against love. Why do you hate love? And the person's sitting there going, I'm not against love. <laughs> and what has happened is, is the discussion has completely gotten away from the actual implementation and goals of whatever your idea is. And you're now just basically making somebody against abstracts. It's almost like, well, you're not against the war on terror. Are you, do you support terror? (laughs) You'll even see that sort of thing, right? When somebody says we're going to cut the military, you'll see like a tweet from all the pro military guys. Like, well, I guess they love ISIS. (laughs) You're just sitting there going, maybe they don't love ISIS. (laughs) I guess they want their women to be taken and be vandalized by the terrorists. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it just takes the conversation and just shoves it into this area where the other person has to suddenly defend that they're for positive things. And And not extreme themselves. Right. And then because it's really hard to argue against those very base things, what you'll get is somebody claiming victory or assuming victory because the person wasn't able to defeat this secondary argument. I watched one one time where somebody was talking about they want all businesses to be worker co-ops. No corporations, no firms. It was everything must be a worker co-op. And so somebody pointed out like, well, what if somebody wanted to create a corporation? Like, why can't you just do worker co-ops now? Like, why can't you just open up the market and let people do worker co-ops now? And the guy's argument was, no, no, because all firms are evil. It's wage slavery. And then when the person started like wage slavery and he started talking about that, he just started shifting right back into, oh, well, aren't you for workers getting paid fairly and having power against bad managers? The guy was like, yeah, of course I'm for that. Well, then what do you, you know, you're just arguing and you just see this shift back to this much more defensible position about I care about workers. Why don't you care about workers? I do care about workers. But what you're saying is you want to get rid of how the entire economy works and only do your idea. That seems insane. So it sounds like the target moves. Yeah, the target will move. And 
instead of just moving the goalposts, moving the goalposts is, you know, you have a target and then when you reach the target, all of a sudden the target's a little bit further down the line, you know, <laughs> it keeps going. Mm-hmm. This one specifically will attach a controversial idea to a non-controversial idea so that you can argue the non-controversial and claim that's what you're saying and then advance the controversial. And the idea is to shift the people who are arguing against you back towards that. That also sounds like how we handle immigration today, where it's you hate people who are immigrants if you want strict immigration. Yeah, you want Mexicans to die. You want. <laughs> Meanwhile, literally, I was in Texas for the last quarter of 2019, and I had a number of Mexican American friends, several who as adults became citizens, and a few that were citizens from the time they were born. And talking with them was enlightening because it was something else to have my project manager be a Mexican American. And she told me that. There was a time where when she was answering questions to a officer before she was given her American citizenship, that they asked her if there was a time that she had ever been held at the border. And she said no. And they were like, take a minute and think about it and give me an answer. (laughs) And she was freaking out because she thought for a moment, somebody stole my ID and got stuck at the border. I'm screwed. And then basically like, damn those Mexicans. And she's also a Mexican, but she meant like the people who would do it illegally and give her a bad name when she's tried to do everything she can to follow the rules. And then she realized that there was one time decades before that she was stopped and she had to get access to a certain ID that had to be mailed to the border and she was there for two days. So like these things happen, but even though that happened to her, it didn't color her view against other people of her ethnicity. It's the concept that people would take it rather than the people who have earned it willingly just receiving it without being colored by the other people who didn't receive it by going through the process. And so I feel like it's an enlightening thing to go and talk to Mexican-Americans, go and talk to people who are impacted by illegal immigration. They're the ones who suffer because they did everything right. The people who did it wrong don't deserve anything from us. And I think that's what has become a controversial issue is we're not human enough, we're not loving enough if we don't just open the border and let them come in, regardless of whether or not they're willing to follow through our protocol. All I can hear is people yelling racist at you from down the street. It's uh, it's unbelievable. (laughs) I'm sure some people are going to listen to this podcast and yell, racist right through the car yeah oh yeah it's you're just going to see that reaction because you've watched that happen so frequently from just they'll start talking about okay how do we handle immigration where do we go from here and somebody will say well i support humanizing people you'll go great i do too so what are we gonna do now (laughs) like great uh, we'll shake hands let's all clap for you that's wonderful i love humanized people humanizing humans good thing i'm on board so now what are we going to do? And the person will be like, well, what we're going to do is actually we're going to take everybody and then we're going to make them all citizens and then we're going to pay for their college and then we're going to pay for their health care. And, and we're going to make them yeah, all we're voters. Make them all voters immediately. In fact, they never even have to speak English. So yeah, so that's, that's what we're going to do. And then somebody will go, well, hold on a second. Some of those ideas seem a little bit much there. Why are we paying for their college? Why can't they just be citizens? Why do we have to pay for everything? The person will go, I thought we were in the humanizing humans business here, buddy. 
And now you start to get this argument where the guy, he retreats back. And then the second you take one step forward and try to extend that olive branch, oh yeah, and you're going to agree to all these other things. The big one that came out over the summer would be, there was the much talked about study that said only 7% of the Black Lives Matter were riots. Oh, the mostly peaceful yes, protests. the mostly peaceful protests. Remember, those were fires of joy. But By the way, I do have to say 7% is a lot. <laughs> That's almost 1 in 10. That's just under 1 right. in 10. Like There are people that went to protests thinking it could happen here. Because it really could have. Right. So <laughs> when I would talk with somebody about this, they were comparing it to the Capitol riots. And their whole point of view was the Capitol riots are worse. And I said, yeah, you know, in terms of by the book, it is worse to attack a seat of government than it is to attack a target. It is. Right. That is technically worse. The executive office is basically sacred. Yeah. It is supposedly worse. That's in Congress, too. But, of course, it's a problem if we're talking about 100 straight days of violence in Portland, people not being able to live, go to work. There are differences here. The study authors that put that out, they said, well, police responded with force 9% of the time. And a lot of people pointed out, well, that means that 7% of the time they should have responded. <laughs> and so the remaining 2%, okay, so the police did their job. <laughs> right? But the moat part that this person was making was they would say, violence and rioting during a peaceful transition of power in this country, that's bad. Okay, yeah, we both agree. And then they would start talking about how the violence is integral to the Republican and the right-wing movement. Now, hold on a second here. This is not integral to the right-wing movement. There was widespread condemnation of this. Now, I mean, there's a lot of people that still support Donald Trump after this, right? Because they think that he was treated unfairly because he did not tell people to go riot. <laughs> and most Republicans would say, look, people who rioted, no, bad, stop. That doesn't mean the rest of us are. But this person was saying, no, 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 it's, it's integral to that right wing. And so when I said, well, hold on a second, that's not, that's not integral. The person just suddenly retreated back to, well, you can definitely agree violence at the Capitol is better than just in a target somewhere. And it's going, yeah, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> well, then there was also the position that the Capitol riots were terrible and anybody who supports them is awful person as well. Okay, fine. And then they would keep going and they'd say, but this is nothing like the BLM riots from the summer. And I absolutely will not talk about or to anyone who thinks that the BLM riots are the same or similar to riots that happened in the Capitol. And I'm just sitting there like, no, riots are bad. Riots <laughs> that happened for BLM in the summer, bad. Riots that happened at the Capitol, bad. And that same person was like, no, I can't stand that logic, that reasoning. This is the line that I have drawn in the sand. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, that's really extreme logic to decide that riots are good so long as... They agree with your stances. Right. Are you serious? <laughs> Look, can you imagine actually taking the position that my riots are different than your riots? <laughs> I mean, this person is basically saying that if BLM rioters came down the street and torched their house, they'd have to be okay with it. And that is my moat in Bailey right <laughs> there, is that it's very easy to accept the moat that, I don't know, that one riot is this way and then say that she has to be okay with her house being burned down as the Bailey. 
Because that says sound a bit more extreme. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what she's advancing is this idea that if you disagree with her that the BLM rides and the Capitol rides are or are not the same, then you somehow are disagreeing with the idea that riots are bad, which is just... Which is outrageous. Because I literally started by saying riots are bad. Riots here and there are bad. They're all bad. Yeah. I mean, the couple things to keep in mind before, you know, you just start seeing Moton Bailey everywhere. And I know a guy in college who his favorite fallacy was the non sequitur. And he would just yell it about everything. Mm. (laughs) And anytime somebody was doing a logic chain and he didn't really have an argument, it would just be, well, that's a non sequitur. You're like, what? And you're like, well, that's a non sequitur. Can you give me an example just for the audience? Yeah. So a non sequitur is something that does not matter. Basically, it doesn't logically follow from the previous argument or statement, so it doesn't matter to the argument. It's any conclusion or statement. So if you know, if I was talking about Medicare for all is going to do such and such a thing, and also I don't like the left. Okay, well, those two things are not related. <laughs> it doesn't logically follow from that. You know, it's it's not part of what you're trying to say. You know, I, there was a funny comment I saw where a guy was talking about how they needed to stop socialism and they were going to do that by taking companies away from the rich and giving it to the workers. And I was like, that's socialism, <laughs> you know. It's like Robin Hood for the uninformed. Yeah. <laughs> It was a conclusion he made and it doesn't logically follow. That's what a non sequitur. But this kid would use it for for really almost anything. You know, if you were just saying, hey, this doesn't seem to make sense to me and here's my thinking, you go, well, that's a non sequitur, so I can't listen to that. So before you think that, we're just seeing Mott and Bailey every single place on the planet. The specific thing is two separate positions. So there's usually two different definitions that they're using that they're going to be switching between. For example, Medicare for all. They could say, I'm for... A good health care for everyone. Great. Wonderful. Easy to defend. Then they can say, what that means is all private insurance should be removed. That's more controversial. Mm. Right? These are two separate things. They're related, though. So what happens is you can slide between the two of those by defending. That's different than moving the goalposts, as we said earlier. That's different than any sort of hypocrisy or any ad hominem types things. So what you want to do is you want to actually find out their definitions. And you want to find, okay, so what is your definition of good health care? That's how you'll defeat these Mott and Bailey arguments is you'll basically say, okay, give me your definition. And then when they give you the definition, you can hold them to that. And you can make the argument to that because they said it. That's one of the easiest ways to defeat it because what is required usually for Mott and Bailey to work is somebody allowing them to switch between the two definitions. So if I say, hey, look, I'm for freedom. Great. What's freedom mean to you? And then if somebody starts going, weed. Like, okay, so that's, all right, so great. Freedom is weed, so you that's what you're for. That's kind of, what do we mean by make them stick to something, make them actually define it, and then once they start defining it, here's my policies, here's what I support, then you can kind of go, okay, well, this would require doing this, so how is that freedom? And you can kind of do that, and then now you've taken control of the conversation back from them, and you can actually have something productive because they need to actually put forward an idea. It sounds like the best way to handle it is going for the specifics, is going to, like you said, definitions. Because a lot of times, I think what's happening is if you use a word like freedom, it means too much. It's too broad. And you have to bring it to something specific because you otherwise are going to make assumptions about what something is to a word that doesn't mean anything. So the word freedom actually does have a meaning, but people are referencing it to mean something else from what it does. Because like when you're saying freedom is the ability to smoke weed, it isn't. 
that isn't what freedom means. That's not the definition of freedom. It's just what it means to that person. Or when we came with the phrase earlier where we said love is love, well, that's not necessarily what love means. So using that definition or that phrase isn't necessarily something that you can have a conversation around. Exactly. And I mean, I remember having discussions around that love is love. I used to work for someone who was in a gay relationship and that person, they were gung ho for when they finally legalized gay marriage and all that. They were like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then I started talking to him about well, here's an issue because this is a Supreme Court decision and not done through the states. It means that all it would take is a Supreme Court challenge and it's gone, <laughs> right? And I talked about it and then I started saying my position would be, I think that since we're talking about a different type of relationship, we should have a different relationship that is more geared towards what your community specifically needs. And it was funny because at the beginning that he was very like, how can you be against love? And I was just like, look, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not about that. I'm talking about here's some practical applications of what just happened. Cause he really went from like, oh, you're one of those like Christians who hate people, aren't you? He went from that at the start to the second I started going, well, it's a Supreme Court decision, meaning that all it would take is the Supreme Court to completely erase it. What we're telling you is this does a disservice to you and your community. Right. This is not going to solve problems. It's going to create or sustain greater problems. Right. And that's really what, I, what I'm trying to convey. And I think what we're trying to convey when we write an episode called Democratic Imperialism is just because democratic comes in front of the word doesn't mean it's actually democratic. At that point, it's just a word used to generate support for the thing that comes after the word. Right. Something that you know the people will go, oh, I like democracy. You know, they, <laughs> and that's why you'll, you'll see people, they talk about like, well, we're new conservatives. Okay, so what's new about you? Well, we like deficit spending. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not, not really new. You're just minorly different. That's just the current Republican <laughs> right. Party and Democratic Party. I don't see a difference at this point. Yeah. So remember, getting those definitions and getting those things, that's what I found across the board. And it's every movement. And this is how they capture people to their movement is they have these little Twitter spats and these little debates. You know, they go to Politicon and they go to all these different places. And... The arguments are literally like, well, my side is here because we like people. Great. What's your side here for? Right. Who doesn't? Well, my side is even more for the people. In fact, he's not for people mm. because I'm really for people. And then the other side gets back up and they start going, well, I mean, how many, how many times have you heard a politician go, I am for the people, the American workers, the American people, you know. The number of times where you could have a speech written by the same person and spoken by people of opposite spectrums and have it be stand and applaud for everyone for every time because it's such general stuff that everybody agrees yeah. with. Well, that's why when Donald Trump got up there and just said winning all the time, there's a reason. It's what people do. <laughs> Who's against winning, right? You can't be against winning. Winning's good. People like winning. If you don't like winning, you're a loser. Haha. <laughs> It's what they're doing. It might not be that, you know, crude of an approach, that sort of blunt force type. But Ted Cruz, he gets up there and he talks about it. He'll look at the camera and he'll go, I want to speak to the American people. He'll look straight in the camera. He's got the Southern twang on. He's looking right at the camera. <laughs> and you're kind of like, okay. <laughs> All right, buddy, we get it. You're talking to the American people. You know, that's, it's a little bit of a smugness that you're kind of like, All right, Ted, like, we get it. You know, so again, you want to steel man your opponent which is the opposite of straw man. Straw man is make up an argument that's easy to defeat. Steel man is make their argument as strong as possible, meaning make them have their definition, give them that chance, 
to say what their positions are. Because one, you'll probably learn something. And two, when you start talking to them, you can hold them to what they said. All this to say, there are ways around the Moton Bailey fallacy. You just have to make sure that you ask for definitions and you define on specific points. But I think we've we've driven that point pretty far. I do. And I think the last thing that kind of these two things come in to play with, just to put them all together, we talked about the core tenets. We've talked about actually making people have definitions. And that's that ideologies have consequences. You know, we've all heard elections have consequences, so ideologies have consequences. Every single ideology has a weak point and a strong point. There's always going to be something that you can critique from an ideology. The problem is you can critique it, but you have to actually implement your ideas. That's the hard part. That's the part in politics that causes all the problems. Right? That's why nobody minds libertarians because how do you, <laughs> they're not actually enacting anything there, right? They're kind of a joke. I was just going to say, they don't even have any power. They never get anyone into office. Which is why it's popular to be like, I remember it was huge. The new thing now is free thinker. And I think I'll go over more at some other time how much I absolutely hate that stupidity. That's a Moton Bailey argument. But do you remember how big being a libertarian was? in like the late thousands and into kind of like during the Obama years, everybody's a libertarian. I was just going to say 2008, something in there. Yeah. I just remember around 2010 to like 2014, everybody was a libertarian. And then when you found out what they were for, they were really just kind of like angry Republicans. Like that, <laughs> that's really what they were. Basically the tea party. Well, I'm a libertarian. Well, what are you for? Well, I'm for small government and strong social institutions and I'm for state and local control and weed. Oh, okay. So you're a Republican who wants his weed, <laughs> you know, and then you talk to like left-wing people. Oh, well, I'm a libertarian. What does that mean? Well, I like abortion. Do people say that? That was an actual thing that you'd see people oh pick up gosh. and they'd say, well, I'm a libertarian. Well, okay. What are you libertarian about? Well, I think that we should have government control except on abortion. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're just a left-winger. Yes, but I don't think that abortion <laughs> should be regulated by governments at all. Okay, so you're a left-winger. So an extreme left-winger. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can see these sorts of arguments. And that's the thing, actually implementing your idea. You know, I remember David Horowitz, he gave a speech, he talked about Republicans sound like accountants. The first thing they say whenever something happens is, well, it costs too much. You know, <laughs> They only sound like accountants when it's a blue president in office. <laughs> that's becoming more and more clear, isn't it? It's kind of concerning, yeah. but yes. You know, and I've often found that a lot of time when I talk to leftists, they sound like old school hellfire preachers. We're all going to die and the oceans are going to come up and sink the entirety of California. Oh, Hawaii is going <laughs> to sink into the ground. Do you remember when Obama promised that he would lower the oceans? <laughs> the oceans would recede? Yeah. 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 Like it, really, it's an old school hellfire preacher. And uh, you can get that sort of reaction. Because even the earth would move to his words. But yeah, it was really actually implementing those ideas to make the ocean lower. That was the contentious part. I liked what uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say this all the time. He still says it all the time, although he's dealing with his cancer bout. Nobody's against clean air and water. You know, nobody's against that. But if you're going to destroy the economy to the point where no one can even live, then people are going to say, okay, maybe I do want a little bit of dirt in my water, <laughs> right? There are trade-offs that happen whenever you put something into practice. So for example, when I talk about, hey, look, I want private health care. I don't want government health care. There are still things where, okay, well, we need to talk about what role does insurance play? 
that means that I need to actually go be socially active. I need to actually have institutions in the community that myself, my friends, and my neighbors are all working towards because I'm saying, hey, we're going to pick up the slack. Okay, cool. You actually have to go then pick up the slack, <laughs> you know, so you can talk about these nice ideas. Social security is a great one. There's good ideas, you know, hey, everybody will have a retirement. Great. Awesome. That was supposed to be temporary. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah. What a great idea. Everybody can have a retirement. We're going to have make sure that everybody gets what they need. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. This actually may have just destroyed everybody's retirement. So when you're talking about your ideology, remember, you can have a really great idea, but that doesn't mean that the outcome of the idea, when you actually start doing it, because when you start dealing with people, you can get some weird outcomes. It's really interesting because there are a lot of parallels between an ideology and a good idea and implementation as with starting a business. And I say this while also being an entrepreneur myself, and that is anyone can have an idea, but if you can't execute it, the idea is worthless. Yes, That is something that comes up in entrepreneurship all the time because people think that because they came up with a really great idea, that means it's worth something. It's actually worth nothing unless you can execute on that idea. And that's why CEOs and CTOs and all that stuff, that's why they're paid so much money to be effective because it's actually really hard to build a new company. And it's the same with ideologies. You can have an idea for an ideology, but then you have to sit down, fill out your core tenets, figure out what is actually a good idea, and actually figure out how you could deliver on those ideas with a plan. And that's really, really hard. It is. Because you could put in there, hey, my values are inclusion, representation, and hard work. You could put that in your business, right? In your manifesto. <laughs> in your manifesto. Yeah, you can talk all about that. What do those mean, right? What is going to actually happen when you do that? You know, G.K. Chesterton had a, he had a great line talking about how you should not take down a fence until you know why it was put there. That's like going back to how we elect the highest office of the land and saying that the... Electoral college, it should be immediately destroyed and we should go to being completely democratic for selecting the president. That is a very good example of the fence. Right. Because people will go, well, you know, it's not needed anymore. It's not anything like that. And then you go, okay, yeah, and you start talking about it. And where you'll often see this line referenced is what's called second order thinking, and which is there are consequences to consequences. So for example, when we initially put in the Patriot Act, everyone loved it, right? Everyone loved it. They were like, oh, we're safe. Let's take out terrorists. We're going to save lives. Now you've got the FISA courts. Now you've got the NSA. I mean, what Snowden revealed, you know, you have <laughs> what Assange revealed. And just a small blurb. So one of the most notable things for Snowden, what he came out with is he showed a lot of PowerPoint screens and some of the most nasty stuff was that he showed off that lots of big tech companies had gag orders to send copies of all of the messages that were being sent between people on their social platforms. They were being copied and sent to the NSA. So that included all of the big social networks that are out there and lots of different email servers were compromised sending copies of emails to the NSA. This is probably still happening to this day. Right. I mean, Carter Page with the Trump campaign, they had, it was through a FISA court. He didn't get to defend himself. And a FISA court, I believe, is where 
it's totally hidden and off the public Correct. record? Yes, it's a completely hidden court and it's supposed to have very limited jurisdiction to specific things. And, and if you don't meet your criteria for getting into the court, but of course, what happens with the criteria expand? What happened if judges make you meet the criteria? And then there are people who get put on no fly list. So they lose their right to own firearms. They can't fly anywhere. Like it ruins their life. And it's because there's a FISA warrant on them. And so you have an issue now. Safety and security of your people. Everyone supports that. But do you also support the idea that you get to face your accuser and that you are innocent until proven guilty? So now you have a problem. How do you put those two things together? I think a good one that I see all the time is Masterpiece Cake Shop and the Twitter Parlor. People will say, look, it's the same case. You know, saying like conservatives. Oh, they supported when they said, hey, you don't have to bake the cake. But now you have to host Parlor. Okay, so are they the same case? Because remember, Parler follows the same rules that Twitter does to not be liable. So Twitter had part of the Capitol riots organized on its platform. They haven't been removed from Amazon. Parler has. Well, the other issue that I have with this is I am personally an Amazon AWS architect associate certified. So I do a lot with their platform. And my issue with it is that if somebody goes into AWS and buys service for a period of time, that's a contract. And I personally think it's a little bit ridiculous that that contract could be voided just because they feel like it versus with the Masterpiece Cake Shop, they were discussing a wedding and they turned down the job to make a cake for a wedding. That's not like they paid in advance and said, yeah, we'll bake the cake for you. And then they said no. Correct. But for a lot of people, those differences don't matter. But should they be mattering, right? Because the values that are at play here is you have a private property value and everybody agrees. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Everybody would generally agree with that. Everybody would also say, hey, I'm a big free speech fan. Love it. People should speak. But now the second you bring up Masterpiece Cake Shop, half the room goes off to one side. So you can see that the implementation of these ideas is where the struggle is. So what I think we need to stop doing is labeling our movements with these ideas and that are just these broad overarching ideas because that's what marketing does. Like what you're supposed to do as a politician is you're supposed to capture the greatest amount of the electorate. So that's why they have these really broad ideas that they talk about because the idea is if I get up on stage and I say, so look, I am a 10th Amendment advocate, what you're going to get is like five people. But if you get up on stage and you talk about I'm for small government. Oh, suddenly there's, you've got a crowd. Right? Everyone goes, I like small government. Oh, yeah, leave me alone. Huh? What a great idea. Now, the problem is <laughs> these small government guys get in there and they're like, well, what I meant is not as large as the other guy would have made it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so still big, but not bigger or just not bigger that way. Yeah. It does lead to the running joke that Republicans are just Democrats from five years ago scary how these things come to be because sometimes it feels pretty yeah. true. So really what this all leads to is all of politics is taking an abstract and putting it into practice. That's all of it, right? You can't hold freedom or tyranny in your hands. It's not possible. You can experience it though. That's easily done. Talk to anybody who's been from a dictatorship. You can experience some tyranny. <laughs> Yeah, tyranny is not voting out your... It's not voting out. <laughs> we toppled the dictator. No, you, no, you didn't. 
If you can topple a dictator by voting, that's not a dictatorship. Oh, there's a reason I have friends who think that less people should vote. And it's when you see stuff like this, we voted out the dictator. Okay. Yeah. There are times where we should go back to the whole, you only get to vote if you own land, but then that would be a massive problem. (laughs) There's another one, you know? And so a solid idea can be derailed by the mere presence of just the fact that there's humans and sometimes humans don't react mm-hmm. the way you want them to. Or sometimes you have to think about the fact that, hey, I have to think about the 75% instead of the 10%. And what you definitely don't want to do, don't fall victim to presentism. Presentism is the idea that you kind of know everything now. That what's available today is automatically better. And that's one of the things that happens to us as well. It also means that don't just constantly think about things in the now. You have to think about the future and you have to think about the past. We've already done amnesty for illegal aliens. We've already done that. There were about 3 million. It was part of an amnesty deal. We'll legalize everybody who is here illegally and we're going to ramp up border security. Does it look like that worked? It looks like it allowed more to happen. Yeah. In fact, there's a pretty good argument that people decided, well, I'll just go there in case you don't want to miss the next one. (laughs) And it happens with plenty of other things, too, like student debt. People are talking about giving $10,000 to remove student debt for those that have it. And that creates a precedent for it to happen again. Right. So if you're saying, hey, I want to do that because it's of the pandemic. Okay then we better have a pandemic at this level before you start selling me student debt again. If you're just doing 10K now and then you're going to do 50K in two years because you want me to vote for you. Nope. (laughs) So just because something is new does not mean it's better or because it's old mean worse. And that's one of the things you'll constantly see people talk about this where you'll bring up an idea from five years ago and they'll go, well, we're, we're now, we're better. Or, well, hey, we've done this for thousands of years. Yeah, but who are those people? So remember, you don't want to be a democratic imperialist. You want to be somebody who has their attendance, who has their core beliefs, who knows what they are and knows the applications are and knows what the downfalls of those things may be. Because that's going to lead you to a much better understanding of what you can and cannot support and how you can actually solve a problem. And it'll make you more open to other ideas. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, We'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.